a very special cast of Cthulhu. Welcome to our uh, very special guest. He is a, an author. He is uh, the preeminent expert on H.P. Lovecraft for the world, I think it's safe to say. Long time in the making. Uh, welcome to the cast of Cthulhu, um, S.T. Joshi. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be here. Um, so I, I want to know a, a lot about your thoughts on <clears throat> Lovecraft, on fiction, on all sorts of stuff. But I want to start back with you way back in the day. If people go to your website, there's an autobiography on you. But I want to hear from you kind of starting at the very beginning, your first exposure, not just to, to the first like H.P. Lovecraft story or, or thing that you found about him, but also what about his work appealed to you at a young age? Yeah, that's uh, that's the whole story. I did write my memoirs uh, some years ago called "What Is Anything." It's it's still out there. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, the paperback edition has a new chapter that goes literally up to almost the beginning of this year. But uh, mm-hmm. so I did go into that, and I'll tell you, my memories are actually one of one of Lovecraft's fragmentary stories begins. My memories are confused, or something like that, and <laughs> mine are too because. I'm an old man now. I'm 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 65. So uh, thinking back to when I was 13 or 14 is a little difficult for me. But I have now concluded that the first time I read Lovecraft was not as I th- had previously thought uh, from the Arkham House editions of the of the 1960s, which were in my public library, but from this little anthology by Betty Owen called Eleven Great Horror Stories." <laughs> the very first story was the Dunwich Horror. And, you know, long story. Now, you know, and I got this, you know, from the Scholastic Book Services. I mean, uh, you know, and at that time, you would buy these little paperback editions through through the school. This was like 95 cents. I mean, it was, what a bargain. Um, especially for someone who never had much money to begin with. I, I, at that time, I, I, you know, was not exactly flushed with cash. Uh, so this was great. Uh, I still have that book somewhere. Um, I remember basically getting into the sort of the atmosphere of this you know, uh, the decaying New England rural area. Remember, I was born in India. I came to, to the U.S. when I was five, settled in the Midwest. Midwest is very different from from backwoods New England. So I, it was a whole new world for me. I said, wow, this is strange. Um, don't remember that much more about the story than that. Uh, but when then uh, I went to the public library and saw the name Lovecraft, that, you know, on these Arkham House books, that must have triggered my my memory. I said, oh, okay, I, I, I seem to like that one story. Maybe I like these other ones. Uh, and sure enough, eventually, not immediately, but eventually, I really, you know, just got into Lovecraft. And, I, and believe it or not, at that time, it was his prose that got me. And to this day, I still love his prose. I think he is a master of English prose. Um, that incredibly rich, dense textured style oh man it really creates an atmosphere all by itself regardless of what what he's actually writing about uh i just fell in love with that prose i think i had been reading a lot of english literature at that time i was uh, i hope i can say this uh, somewhat advanced in my reading at that time um you know because my parents were both professors so it was an academic environment my mother would actually allow me to use her university library card to go and check books out from the university library, Ball State University in mm-hmm. Montana, Indiana. Um, and so I read a lot of, you know, I read the Brontes, I read Thackeray and all this stuff, you know, that maybe 13, 14 year old people don't read that much, but I loved it. And that's maybe why I, I, I've got to Lovecraft because, you know, obviously he's early 20th century and not 19th century, but nevertheless, that that kind of prose, you know, that is 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 just is is magic. Uh, it was to me, and I, I to this day I love anybody who writes 
you know, vibrant, distinctive pros like that, whether it be Ramsey Campbell or Thomas Ligotti or whoever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's funny because that that could actually be something that I could see would turn people away, whereas I'm very much like you. It's the the eloquence and the kind of the denseness of the text, which is actually what draws me in and and that I that I enjoy so much about. And just because I've listened to so much um, of the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Society, whenever I read one of his books, I always picture Andrew Lehman's voice in my head as Mm -hmm. doing the reading as as the narrator. I can't I can't get get it out of there Um, and and it it supplements it for me. Um, But I'm wondering also then um, in your family um, specifically, what was the approach, I don't want to say initially approach, but maybe the attitude towards horror or genre specifically, because we've talked to people and I've heard from people before that like discovering Lovecraft in like a, you know, a dusty book in an attic or even just discovering their first kind of formative monumental horror thing was almost kind of like this taboo forbidden thing that drew them to it. Did you have the same experience or was it, or I mean, having academic parents, I'm imagining things are maybe a little bit more open, but correct me if I'm incorrect on that. Uh, I'm not so sure about that because, you know, at that time, we're talking about the early 70s here, yep. uh, horror fiction was still, it was getting popular, not super popular because, uh, you know, and, like, Stephen King hadn't really shown up, but, uh, yep. um, you know, it was, you know, the, we had these big blockbuster movies, um, you know, but it was still regarded as, shall we say, uh, you know, somewhat disreputable, um, you know, a, a sort of you know, lurid form of popular fiction that was, you know, not, uh, not, uh, uh, certainly not highbrow by any means. But I think that because I gravitated towards older writers, uh, like Poe, uh, Ambrose Bierce, uh, Arthur Mackin, and then Lovecraft, I, I don't think my mother really, uh, my parents really didn't, you know, care. They, they liked the fact that I was, you know, buried, buried in books. And remember, I started writing around this time also, not directly inspired by Lovecraft, although it, later on it clearly was uh, something that I kind of wanted to emulate, uh, you know, tried to emulate Lovecraft's prose and things like that. Um, uh, and 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 also my school, uh, my, my high school, Burris uh, Laboratory School, it was a branch of the Ball State Teachers College, uh, was also very supportive and we had really good teachers who said, yes, basically they allowed me to read anything I wanted to. You know, they knew that I was kind of way ahead of everybody else and, uh, uh, you know, and I also, I had a, what I really think is a disreputable taste for detective stories and to this day, I still like detective stories even though they're really pretty shallow and empty and there's nothing there to them except you know, as a puzzle story. Uh, actually, the only, the only, I will just add as a, as a critical note, the only genuine contribution the detective story has made to literature, I think, is the hard-boiled crime story. Uh, hmm. That is genuine literature, whether it be uh, Dashiell Hammett or, uh, you know, uh, Raymond Chandler or slightly different um, Patricia Highsmith, people like that. Those, those are, are genuine writers, but most detective story writers are there's nothing to them. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, yeah, I I wanted to for some reason to study. I wouldn't say study, but to to absorb the the these older writers. They appeal to me more than 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 the you know current writers. I'm I'm sure I read William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist, you know, because it was a big, big bestseller. I actually mm-hmm. liked Thomas Tryon's two novels, um, uh, The Other and Harvest Home, better than Blatty, for example. I thought Thomas Tryon, to this day, I think, is a really fine writer. Uh, those two books are outstanding uh, as as literature, uh, not just as horror. Um, but generally, I gravitated toward the old school and, and sort of laid the foundations for my interest in the whole history of horror fiction. 
Mm-hmm. And then, so as you got older, I mean, you said that you were a writer, you you discovered Lovecraft kind of very early on, but eventually you got to a point in your life where it wasn't just the indulging in Lovecraft, but the studying and really kind of digging into it, like you wanted to pursue that as sort of like a, as a career or a passion. So as you got older, what was it that about him as a subject or his work that, that you really like kind of wanted to dedicate your career path to that? Or, or and, and was there a factor of even just like, well, nobody else is doing this and this is something I care a lot about. So maybe this is something I can contribute. Yes. All, all of the above actually, um, <laughs> because, okay, we're talking about early to mid 1970s now. Um, something, I know I had, re- there was very little information about Lovecraft, the person at that time, uh, yeah. and, you know, some of these Arkham house books, you know, of, of sort of what they called miscellany are out there, but they were hard to find. I mean, they were usually not in libraries. Luckily, my public library had this volume called The Dark Brotherhood and other pieces of, from 1966. And that had a lot of interesting information. Uh, and I picked up stuff here and there and everywhere. Um, and to be sure, I felt a bond with Lovecraft because I shared a lot of his attitude, not just superficial things like love of cats. I mean, maybe that's not so superficial, but uh, uh, I did love cats. Uh, I'm, I'm not fond of ice cream, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> so I, I, I don't get why Lovecraft is so fond of ice cream, but no matter, but he was, you know, he was a somewhat shy, withdrawn individual. So was I. He was obviously bookish. So was I. Um, he had an interest in the past, a profound interest in how the past affects the present and the the whole cultural heritage uh, of a civilization that that makes you what you are. I mean, one of my favorite statements of his is is a slight. <clears throat> modification of the famous statement that that William Faulkner made independently when uh, Lovecraft said the past is real it is all there is uh, it's a brilliant remark you have you can dissect that in many different ways um so as i was starting to read lovecraft and read him repeatedly i mean uh, you know two or three times over again uh, one time, by the way, I read him with a dictionary <laughs> because, uh, you know, I mean, my vocabulary was good. It wasn't that good, though. <laughs> I didn't know what cacodemoniacal was. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even know what eldritch was, you know, things like that. So I said, all right, in order to really understand Lovecraft, I have to read it with a dictionary. And every time I came upon a word that I didn't know, I looked it up in that dictionary. And that, that was a huge help. But I realized, okay, there's this firm called Arkham House that has been publishing Lovecraft's letters. Oh, my God. And they were not available in my library. So I said, Mother, can you please ask uh, your library to get these volumes on interlibrary loan? Because I couldn't do that. I'm just a high school student, you know, but she could as a professor. Sure enough, Indiana University said, yeah, here's the first three volumes of selected letters. And, oh, my, uh, that was a revelation. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's bad stuff in there. You know, we know about the racism. We don't have to talk about that. But uh, aside from that, I, I felt a real connection with Lovecraft. There was like, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what it is. It's just, it, you know, it, 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 it felt like, you know, he and I were on the same wavelength in a lot of ways. And so, yes, I started to say maybe I can contribute to the study of this person because indeed he is not well recognized in the uh, general literary world, certainly not the academic community. And even in high school, I said, well, let me let me see what I can do, because in terms of my writing, I had already shifted from writing fiction, which uh, I tried and tried and tried. I said, I'm a terrible fiction writer. It's just no good. It's not going to (laughs) work. Let me try writing criticism. Not that I knew the first thing about writing criticism either, yep. <laughs> you know, in high school. I mean, book reports aren't really criticism, are they? they but, sure. you know, I, re- I had read enough other types of criticism and said, okay, maybe I could do something similar. Um, and so 
the funny thing is, one of the real triggers of how I got into Lovecraft was L. Sprague de Camp's biography of 1975. Now, that biography is, has lots of flaws, and, you know, we don't have to go into that, um, but it was the first full-length book about Lovecraft, you know, uh, that chronicled his life from beginning to end. It was a huge book, four or five hundred pages, published by a major publisher, Doubleday, came out in the spring of 1975, and it got to my public library and said, oh my God, I, I nearly fainted when I saw this book in the in the new releases section of my public library. I like, wow, I snatched it up and said, I got to read this. And I just, I devoured it from beginning to end. I said, okay, that's it. I'm, 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 I'm done. Uh, I, I got to study Lovecraft. I'm pretty sure it was either from that book or maybe something else where I discovered that a lot of Lovecraft's papers were at this, uh, at the library of Brown University. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, okay, so conveniently enough, this was I was just concluding my my soft my junior year of high school and starting my senior year where I would have to apply to colleges. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have to apply to Brown University. Brown, in fact, my mother had this idea said you're going to go to a top flight institution. So she only allow, allowed me to apply to Yale, Brown, and Harvard. <laughs> that was, I got into Yale and Brown. Harvard put me on their waiting list. So I said. Hell with you, Harvard. Goodbye. I don't want to be at Harvard anyway. Mm-hmm. My mother pleaded with me, please go to Yale, because it, <laughs> she thought it was more prestigious, you know, whatever. And I said, no, mother, I'm going to Brown. I didn't say this to her directly, but I said, I'm going to Brown to study H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> and I did. I studied a lot of other things, too, and I had a great education there. Um, but as I say, by this time, I had gotten into the sort of the this relatively small community of other people, scholars, fans, who were really trying to take Lovecraft up to a different level. And the leading figure in that uh, movement at that time was this guy, Dirk Mosig. Uh, he was a professor in Georgia. Later, he moved to Nebraska. But um, he was my mentor. I think for like the next five years, he and I wrote hundreds and hundreds of letters. Let, remember, this is this old-fashioned, old-school, either by hand or typewritten. We, we exchanged so many... Th- you know views about Lovecraft and he he molded me and and he was thrilled that that he was some guy who you know has something of a brain and it will be at Brown for years you know at least four years let's hope uh in the end I went <clears throat> stayed there for six years I did a master's there also uh because Mosig of all people realized that the material at Brown whether it be manuscripts printed materials all kinds of other stuff required somebody to be there for a long time. You couldn't even just spend a few weeks there. There was so much material there. You can't even begin to imagine how much there is. And I just plunged into it. Whenever I was not in school, you know, in classes or studying, I was at the library uh, looking up whatever. You know, there was so much there. Um, at that time, I had already been asked, this was, as, as, a junior, as, a, as a senior in high school, incredibly enough, they didn't know I was a senior in high school, but uh, a publisher, Kent State University Press, said, "Why don't you do a bibliography of Lovecraft?" I said, "Me? Well, what do I know about doing a bibliography?" Well, I figured I'd get help from Mosig and other people. In the end, I actually ended up doing most of it myself because you know I was right there at Brown and they had all this material. So I did that, and somebody else, Mosig, and some other guy suggested, "You know, we're not sure that the texts of Lovecraft's work are sound in the Archimedes editions. There seem to be some mistakes there." And I started studying the manuscripts, and I said, uh, yes, there are lots of mistakes, so many mistakes. Oh, God, I couldn't believe what was happening. And so then I had to study how how this had happened. How did, how did all these mistakes happen? Well, it's a whole complicated procedure, but 
what helped me in that was that independently I had start, became, become interested in classics, that is, the study of Latin and Greek literature. Sure. Uh, and I learned Latin and Greek, and that, that was actually hugely helpful. And Latin and Greek literature, it is essential to know how a text has gotten to the point where we can read it, you know, from antiquity through all these medieval copies and all that sort of it's a whole process the whole thing field of textual studies began with classical literature and so i applied what i learned there to the study of lovecraft and said ah i see how these texts you know got the got got to the state they are with well, all these horrible mistakes uh, and so we got to start all over again go back to manuscripts go back to early printed sources and after like six years i finally said okay i think i have a corrected text of lovecraft out there Eventually got into negotiations with Arkham House and we published the new text in the mid mid eighties and went on from there. It's it's so funny how you mentioned reading some of his stuff with a dictionary, because I can I I've read a bunch of his stuff over and over again and I've got like all the, the, the books which are like all the short stories collected together and I'm like, Oh yeah, I always had to kind of check the annotations in the back and it only just occurred to me now. So like, oh, you were the one who wrote those annotations. <laughs> so when it came time for locations or certain text or when he or when in a story he references something which is from another text or another story and just this idea of how, you know, he had so many correspondence and the universe was sort of interconnected to agree, like, oh, that was you that was writing those all, those all time. So I, I you, you can you can relate to, to that that experience, certainly. Um, with all this work that you that you were doing, I know you said when you kind of first started, Lovecraft wasn't the most popular, you know, guy out there, even the, the first, you know, uh, film adaptation, The Haunted Castle, was so-called because that was a Poe story. So they needed that cover of popularity in order to get Lovecraft out into the world. Um, were you able to kind of like through your work clear any misconceptions or or put forth or popularize kind of an idea about this guy, or, or was it just this idea of like he is a lot more influential than I think than the public actually realizes? Um. Oh God. Yes. I mean, you got to start with the letters. I mean. Uh, I didn't read the letters all that carefully because I was interested in interpreting the fiction, but then I kept going back to the letters. The fiction, and actually everything Ruffaff wrote, is a kind of vast autobiography. Mm. Maybe that applies to every author, I don't know, who knows. But, um, you know, because we have so much of the evidence in the letters uh, of what his views are, even, you know, and, and his daily, you know... Uh, travels and and everything literally we, we can we can almost chart day by day in some cases what he was doing you realize how much of himself he put in those in, into his stories um it's not it's not obvious all the time um but it you know it's it's there and i i mean there, there are so many misconceptions i hope that i've cleared up uh <laughs> mostly it's 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 you know the, the information is out there it's just how you interpret it for example Elspreth de Camps, uh, you know, as a professional writer, he was he was a resolutely professional writer, uh, and he, he criticized Lovecraft for this amateur stance that Lovecraft always had, that Lovecraft didn't really want to make money. He didn't make much of an attempt to uh, market his work in the way a professional writer did, and, and de Camp criticized him for that, but I said, uh, no. Uh, it's because he had this amateur attitude in the best sense of that term what does that and what does amateur mean it means doing it for the love of it the mm -hmm. word love that's that's the root word of amateur um he i mean of course it would be nice if he had made more money in his lifetime to you know from his work but that was not in his temperament he adopted the attitude of the 18th century for good or ill that writing is sort of an elegant amusement for for a gentleman now there's a lot of class class bias in that it doesn't matter 
he wrote for himself. Um, he wrote to express you know, feelings and ideas and things that he had to express. Uh, it didn't matter if anybody read his work. It didn't matter if anybody understood his work. It was for himself. Um, and by temperament, he just was a bad marketer of his work. That's just the way he was. You can't change him. That's that's just that's it. Um, uh, it would have been nice if Lovecraft had developed some other occupation uh, that where he could write stuff on the side and not worry about you know money but he didn't and so he lived in poverty most of his life but it's because he had that attitude what i what i call aesthetic integrity that he would not write to a market uh, especially this crude pulp magazine market i mean you can't believe how <laughs> bad pulp fiction really is i mean you got to read an entire issue of weird tales not just the nuggets by people like lovecraft and and robert e howard and, and henry s white that's the good stuff mm-hmm. the average stuff is horrible it is awful it should should be permanently you know destroyed if, if possible but it is really bad stuff lovecraft didn't want to write like that and and unfortunately he had to some degree uh to cater to that market I mean, he couldn't help it because you know he wanted to get published there um you know maybe it ended up sort of affecting his work to some degree but on the whole he stuck to his guns he says this is how i'm going to write uh, and, and he wrote to the editor of Farnsworth Wright. He says, you take this stuff or you don't. I'm not going to revise it. Um, and that's the way it was. He got rejected painfully sometimes. Uh, yeah. And, and, and it, it, you know, he had rather low self-esteem. And so these rejections really hurt him and affected his writing. But nevertheless, he stuck to it and he wrote exactly what he wanted to write. Now, as you've gotten older, um, you know, it's 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 fascinating to me because I'm, I'm a Obviously, I run a film podcast. I'm a big movie guy. It's fascinating to me how the art doesn't change, but your response to it does because how you change as an individual, how you grow. So as you've gotten older, as you started doing more work on Lovecraft and just gotten older and and saw your life change, did you also see your response to Lovecraft's work change? Not And not in the sense of like it went from positive to negative, but more just certain things that you started responding to more or that you maybe noticed more as you were older versus when you were younger? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when you're a kid, or at least when I was a kid, as I say, I love the prose. I love these crazy, you know, gods that he came up with. They're not really gods, but let that pass. Mm-hmm. You know, and these this incredible imagination that he had. I mean, and, and to this day, I, I have, you know, he, he has one of the greatest weird imaginations of anybody in human history. Mm-hmm. Um, as I aged, as I myself not only just studied Lovecraft, but studied life, got into life, you know, studied philosophy and all this sort of thing. I, I actually wrote a whole book about Lovecraft's philosophy because I think that's important to understand uh, uh, how it, how, what the philosophy was and how it's reflected in his fiction. Um, I took a more intellectualist attitude to Lovecraft. I said, oh, he is embodying some of these very interesting ideas that were current at the time, whether it be the theory of relativity or, or you know, um, uh, free will, you know, all sorts of things that were going on at that time. He was reflecting in his fiction. Mm-hmm. Still later, I, I said, okay, this guy, um, as I studied the history of horror fiction, I said, this guy was really revolutionary. Poe was revolutionary in his way, in, in one sense. Then Lovecraft came along and was revolutionary in another sense. That's why Poe and Lovecraft are really the two greatest horror writers uh, in, 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 in literature. Um, and he revolutionized the field by taking it away from the, the standard uh, motifs that had already become stale in his time. And he recognized it, you know, the ghost, the vampire, uh, haunted house. These things were played out because Lovecraft, as a devotee of science, said, 
we know too much about the universe to to have any credibility in these in these things anymore they can't be used even in fiction uh, you know it's it's, 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 it's it, the, the suspension of disbelief is impossible in these cases so he had to come up with a whole new kind of horror and you know resting on as he called it the fear of the unknown and where is the most concentrated fear of the unknown it's in outer space it's in out there we still don't know much about what is out there anything could be out there and so that's why he devised this whole uh pseudo mythology that that structured basically the the whole of his work for the last 10 years and as i understood that whole pattern of the history of fiction from from the gothic novels up to his day i said wow he's done something really special here and then that that has cast a huge shadow right up to the present day uh to, to, to writers like campbell and Ligotti and ted klein and and so many others that's that's kind of a good segue or transition to what i wanted to ask uh next anyway which is basically about your response to or your resonance uh, or lovecraft's resonance to you as an atheist you're a devout atheist you've written about it before lovecraft was as well i mean even sort of the to put it incredibly simplistically, you know, his philosophy and as expressed in his work is basically like there is nothing beyond this physical existence. We are just kind of here, insignificant bags of meat, sort of, if you will. Um, as a as a, an atheist, did that appeal to you? Did you find that intellectually stimulating? Because I, I just I was born and raised religious, specifically evangelical Christian. It's something that I have gotten away from, but that's actually what I found to be so fascinating and scary about his work is how antithetical it was to what i was brought up to believe in the sense that we are special that there is a larger plan and his work was basically no that's not the case actually everything is kind of a mistake and insignificant so i'm curious about that for you yeah i mean uh, my parents are hindu were hindu mm -hmm. um but my father called himself a secularist and he said to his wife we you know i and my my two sisters we should not be indoctrinated to any religion, whether it be Hinduism or anything else. Mm -hmm. Not that we should be uh, uh, steered away from religion. We actually had a, books about all the major religions in, uh, of the world in our house, and we were encouraged to look into them. But uh, my father said, let them decide. Don't force them to adopt a view that, uh, that, that, that they can't come up with on their own when you know when their minds are are not prepared to to to, to uh, really deal with this on their own. Uh, what did that incline me toward atheism? I don't know. I mean, I was sort of what might be called a passive atheist. I didn't really even think about religious issues when I was a kid. Um, but when I read Lovecraft, I said, "Boy, you know, especially his letters." I said, "These arguments are very compelling," and that's mm -hmm. that's uh, you know, I, I I you know, I I cannot deny the force of these these arguments that he had. Um, and that through him, I read people like Bertrand Russell and, and uh, George Santayana and, and many other uh, atheists, agnostics, secularists. Uh, and so my atheism then became uh, conscious. Um, and I, I, yes, to some degree, I suppose I'm an evangelical atheist. In fact, I am, <laughs> I am in the process. I've spent a couple of years and already it will be another year or so uh, writing a history of atheism in the West uh, the first volume will be published second half of next year. The the second that's first volume. The second half volume, you know, sometime thereafter. Um, I, I gave it the pungent title, "The Downfall of God." Sorry, no offense to anybody out there, <laughs> but I'm afraid Mr. God has has, has suffered a downfall. Um, uh, we are we are in a secular age. Let's just be blunt about it. Um, that's just the way it is, um, because you most people have no conception of how thoroughly religious. 
prior ages of, of Western civilization were. I mean, you cannot even begin to imagine how religion structured everything in life uh, mm-hmm. from the medieval era up, up to about the, the, you know, the early Renaissance. Anyway, um, yeah, Lovecraft has been a, a key element in my becoming a, a, an atheist and a proponent of atheism. Uh, I did compile a little book of Lovecraft's writings on, a, on, on the subject. It's called Against Religion. Uh, it's out there in, in English, and it's actually been translated into at least uh, Italian and German, oddly enough, um, because they're, 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 they're pretty big on that out there also. Um, and I've gone on to you know, assemble other volumes of, of relating to atheism, and and I come back to Lovecraft. He is uh, he is a, a central figure for me in this in this uh, development. Hmm. So then let's let's I, I want to actually start digging into not digging into text, but kind of specifically talking about some of the text, and which will eventually transition to a little bit of talk about movies. This is a movie hmm. podcast. I suppose I should. I should uh, uh, pay some lip service to that. But uh, if there is anyone listening to this who is, they've heard of Lovecraft, they are, or someone like me who even before I knew who Lovecraft was, I knew what or who Cthulhu was. And that was kind of my entryway into, oh yeah, this guy was the one that created that thing. Okay, that's, let me, let me explore that a little bit more. But if, if people are wanting to explore something, if you could list, I don't know, three might be too, too specific, but just kind of three maybe short stories or works of his to kind of start with, to get a sense of who he is. Which ones would you recommend to people? Well, I'll tell you. Um, getting into this Cthulhu mythos is a little difficult because it, it can seem a little daunting at, at first, because, and especially mm. because the stories he wrote are fairly long stories. Yeah. Very rich. I mean, they're great stories, but sometimes a little hard to, for, for the, the uh, novice to, to get into. I believe that my own... Uh, downfall, if you will, in terms of, of, of devotion to Lovecraft, came from reading The Rats in the Walls. Oh, yeah. It is a magnificent... It is, to my mind, one of the most perfect, perfectly constructed short stories ever written. And, and in fact, that's another thing that I developed in my understanding when I started reading, you know, literature uh, as a whole, that, that Lovecraft was a great craftsman in the construction of a story, not just his prose. He had a tremendous sense of how a story should be put together, and the rats in the walls really embodies that uh, about as well as any sh- relatively short story of his. After that, oh, you got to read the, the Colorado Space. Uh, Love, <laughs> Lovecraft thought that was his greatest story, and I, I think it's his second greatest story. Um, but it is a masterwork of atmosphere and uh, and and the tremendous. Uh, you know, sense of cumulative horror that comes in that story, and the, the, the tremendous sense of outsideness, as he yes. called it, uh, <laughs> that is that is uh, un, un, unmatched. Um, I confess, I hesitate to offer at the Mountains of Madness because that's my favorite story, uh. only because it is it is difficult. Um, yes. Perhaps the first half, it in particular, but and I tell you, I I have a vivid re- recollection when I first started tried to read that story when I was 13 or 14. I said, I, I can't get through this. I'm, I'm, I'm too stupid <laughs> because my knowledge of science was very poor at that time. And, and unfortunately it still is poor. I mean, I've learned a little bit, but I, I, I just, I'm not a science guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I distinctly recall stopping at page 53 of the Arkham house edition and said, <laughs> I, I can't read this. I'm, I, I don't, I don't know enough. So I put it aside. I read all of the other work and I fell in love with it and then got back to Atmos Madness and just grew my teeth and, and, and read, read it to the end and I'll tell you, oh my God. That scene at 
toward the end where those two hapless narrators, uh, protagonists, come into contact with the Shoggoth, <clears throat> I still think is like the most frightening passage in the history of horror fiction. It really is. It's an amazing passage. So all that's fairly heavy stuff before that <laughs> is worth it if you get to the end. Um, you know, what can you say? It's 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 magnificent. I think Shadow Out of Time is an easier story to read to some degree, uh, even though it's somewhat dense, but it, it I think it reads better, um, mm -hmm. especially in my correct edition, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, because, oh man, I won't go into the whole story of this, but, but uh, Lovecraft's manuscript of that story was lost for like, 60 years oh, wow. and it suddenly surfaced it's a whole long story you can read it in my my annotated edition uh it suddenly surfaced in 1994 uh we thought it was all long gone um you know because it hadn't surfaced you know but and i luckily enough it came to brown university i was i was the i was long you know i was working in new york city but i was the first person allowed to consult that that scribbled handwritten manuscript oh. written in this little little schoolboy's what composition book, you know, because that's all he had to write with, apparently, um, in pencil, which is also hard to read, but no matter. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I, I looked at the Arkham House edition and I looked at the manuscript, like, what's going on here? There's like all sorts of horrible mistakes, mostly in paragraphing. You know, uh, when it was published in Astounding Stories, uh, the, the, the magazine chopped up a lot of his paragraphs into the shorter paragraphs because that's that's what pulp people did. You know, mm -hmm. they felt that their readership didn't like these long, you know, drawn out paragraphs. Fine. And there's also, there are hundreds and hundreds of errors. But I tell you, when you read the real story, it's incredible. And, and I think that's that's an easier story to digest than, than uh, At the Mountains of Madness. And it conveys also that sense of the cosmic that really is the, 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 the signature contribution of Lovecraft. Yeah, the I'm glad you said The Color Out of Space. That is, that is probably my favorite story of his. And I think the best in terms of, as you say, tone and even mood. I, I don't think he's written something as bleak as that in the mm -hmm. sense of you, you get to the end like, well, everything is terrible and will continue to just be terrible. And that's that's sort of it. There's there's no hope whatsoever. My co-host, James, um, loves a movie if it has a bleak and hopeless ending. And so I think he responds very, very much to that story and to those adaptations, because we've covered three, four adaptations of it just on this podcast. Most of them of, of, of high quality, with the exception of the one starring Will Wheaton, The Curse. Uh, but they all kind of do convey this idea of, something being outside of the control of us and just kind of that's it. And the best we can do is exist at the mercies of whatever outside cosmic forces come into play. Your experience with at the mountains of madness, when he first tried to read it is my experience with the dream quest of unknown Kadath. But I have to say shamefully, I still have not gone back and read it because I just find it so dense and, and inaccessible. Actually, you're right about that. Uh, and, and I, uh, I got in touch in the 70s with J. Vernon Shea, uh, who had corresponded with Lovecraft. You know, never met him, but corresponded with him for four or five years. And he said, I have still not read The Dreamcast of the Death. And I understand that. It took me a while to get through it, and I still don't... I mean, I, I like it. I sort of like it, but um, it, 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 is a, it is a strain. Um, Lovecraft himself said it was a practice attempt at, at a, a longer narrative. So it was just, you know, whatever. And he never made the attempt to get it published. But I'll tell you, when you get to the end, this this incredible speech by Nyarlathotep to, to Randolph Carter about basically what you're looking for, you know, what what is it about you that, that, that sent you into dreamland? 
one of the most poignant things he's ever written. I mean, it, it, it comes right from the heart. It was written right after he got back to, to Providence from, from New York City, these horrible two years he had in New York City. Uh, he had come home, and, and Dream of Quest of Unknown Kadath is about coming home, and it, it incredibly poignant in, the, in that regard. So uh, mm. grit your teeth sometime and just get to that ending. It's well worth it. <laughs> so then the flip side of that, I'll, I'm going to ask you, there is if there were things that you want to tell people, like, don't start here, you're not going to get a sense of who this guy is, and whether that is because of something that's inaccessible or if it's a, a bad piece, what would you say, like, don't start here, you're not going to get a good sense of who this guy is or what he is capable of if you start reading this story first? Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, Lovecraft was not always on. I mean, most of the time he was. And even his lesser pieces or his less successful pieces still have a lot of interest, uh, you know, biographically or in, in other ways. Uh, I have never been, I have never warmed to the dreams in the witch house. Uh, I just don't think uh-huh. it comes off. Uh, he was trying to do different things. He was trying to take the old witchcraft legend and meld it with advanced astrophysics or something. I don't know what. Uh, and it just, it just doesn't succeed. Another story that also doesn't work for me is the, the thing on the doorstep. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's just too, it's too obvious what's happening. Uh, the, the ending is great. This, this, you know, it's talk about body horror and, you know, the whole idea of being thrust into somebody else's decaying corpse. That's, that's a very charming, you know, a distinctive, uh, uh, horrific element. But it, it's it's not well written, and it's it's uh, you know uh, you kind of know know what's going to happen from the first page. Yeah. Um, Lovecraft, yeah, it, those the, the last deck, really the last five six years of his life, he was greatly troubled, partially because weird tales rejected at the mouths of madness, and to him that was a dagger in his heart. He yeah. and he had later said that essentially ended my fictional career. It's a horrible thing to hear, but uh, yeah. so he just didn't know what to do, and he just kind of floundered around for a while, wrote some great stories like Shadow of Time, but also some of these clunkers that, that uh, you know, it, it, he, he was in a very bad state of mind in a, in a lot of those years. Uh, so some of those stories don't come off. And some of the early ones, uh, you know, like the moon bog, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty slight. Um, but again, interesting in, in, for, for in terms of influences and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. uh, So he, he could be hit or miss, but mostly mostly hit, shall I say. I've heard, and I don't know if it was from you that I heard years ago, but like that the Hound was a, is a bad place to start too, because you really have to understand his style before you read and understand what he's doing with his own work, kind of satirizing it in a way before. So that I, I've heard that one is a bad one. To start yeah, as well. oh, I love the Hound though. <laughs> I think it's a hoot. It's 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 obviously self parody. I mean, or or a parody of that kind of over the top uh, of you know horror fiction that was even then being written, you know, and, and uh, stuff like that. Um, I don't know. I, you just gotta, you just gotta, you know, relish that kind of, uh, you know, flamboyance. It's, it's just, it's fun. I think it's not a weighty piece. It's, uh, um, you know, he just tossed it off. I mean, it was actually uh, written uh, shortly after he had visited the Dutch Reformed Church in uh, Brooklyn, um, and actually had had chipped off a little piece of a grave. Like Lovecraft, what are you doing, you vandal? Uh, anyway, and he, and, he, and he said, "Oh well, I have this little 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 piece of a you know tombstone on my on my my desk here. What what what's the guy who who's buried there gonna gonna do and and to seek <laughs> revenge? And that's that's how the Hound came to be written. Um, uh, but it's it's just fun. Uh, I mean, it's as much fun as." the loved dead 
which is another way over the top piece that he basically ghost wrote for his friend uh, C.M. Eddie, um, uh, and actually has some uh, well stuff that's even now considered, shall we say, beyond the bounds of tasteful literature like like necrophilia and stuff like that. Oh, heavens, wow! <laughs> Lovecraft of all people trying to write that sort of stuff. I mean, we know he was very puritanical in his sexual attitudes, but no matter. Um, and I even get a huge kick out of um, the lurking fear. That's, again, way over the top, but actually has some interesting ideas in it uh, that he used later on to better effect. Um, so, I, I don't know. I just, I enjoy that sort of stuff. But you got to realize that, that that he's in control of what he's doing. He's not, uh, I've always said, he's not. he's the master, not the slave of his style. He knew exactly the kind of tone he wanted for any given work. And, and on the whole, he chose correctly how to how to write a work uh, for maximum uh, effect one one question that i actually forgot to ask that i wanted to get to was the work of other authors as well you've mentioned campbell you've mentioned Machin, you've mentioned all uh, legati all these other authors who work in whatever you want to call it cosmic horror uh supernatural horror whatever uh these days and, and i think we've made this this not even this claim, but we tend to do this as well, is that when it comes to cosmic horror and Lovecraftian horror, we kind of tend to use them interchangeably. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, is that correct? Or is there something about cosmic horror and Lovecraftian horror where there's subtle differences, something that maybe he added or that he refined? Or, you know, if you read one, do you necessarily are familiar with the other? Um, I, you know, Lovecraft himself looked to some uh, of his predecessors as sort of the uh, the founders of cosmic horror i i don't find that much of it in in past writing um you know Lovecraft went all the way back to uh, uh you know melmoth the wanderer by by charles robert maturin uh from 1820 and there's there's nothing cosmic there i, I don't know why he even referred to that but poe has a few cosmic pieces not much um you know he, he his his imagination just wasn't cosmic uh he was so focused on the human, you know, which is yeah. fine, but that's just the way he was. You know, the death of a beautiful woman, that sort of thing. Uh, death, you know, the great threshold of death was was Poe's, uh, you know, defining characteristic. Um, William Hope Hodgson, in one story, well, the, the House on the Borderland has some tremendous cosmic oh. passages, but yeah, Lovecraft yeah. read that very late in life, you know, and he read that only in like 1934, so it wouldn't have influenced his... His, his own cosmic work. Weird story, too. I know. It actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but <laughs> no. the, the atmosphere and the imagery are, are tremendous. Um, Hodgson wasn't a good prose writer, quite frankly. I mean, his prose is a little clunky at times, but uh, still, that, that that's a great achievement. Um, but otherwise, Lovecraft really defined cosmic horror. I mean, and and really set the tone for, for everything that followed. And it's because, for him... It was not just a literary theme. It really, it, 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 it meant something to him. He really was convinced that the universe is immense, both in space and in time. That's important too. Um, uh, that And that, that humanity is a little, you know, ink blot on the back door of the universe. It, it was a feeling that, that was, was essential to his whole philosophical makeup. Um, it didn't necessarily make him a pessimist. He himself said, both pessimism and optimism are are foolish. He he called himself an indifferentist. <laughs> he said, by which he meant that the universe simply doesn't care what happens to us. And maybe that's that's even a worse kind of misanthropy than than any than actual misanthropy. Who knows? But the point is, he says, and and, and he got around that emotionally by saying, well, uh, 
it's all right if things matter to me personally, if things matter to our culture, that because we are on the human scale here, things may not matter cosmically, but they matter locally. Uh, and, and for him, it's this allegiance to the past that, that for him provided a certain anchor of, of emotional security um, that allowed him to, to live from day after day. And that's fine. And we, we all have some sort of, uh, um, you know, defense mechanisms of that sort that allow us to, to wake up every morning and, and get through the day. Um, even though I think maybe all of us, however religious, however, whatever view you have, understand that, well, the human race really doesn't matter much in the grand scheme of things. I mean, the universe is so immense. Everybody knows that now. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, billions and billions of years old. I mean, what, what could our existence possibly matter? Well, it matters to us. And that's, that's enough. Yeah. Um, so, mm-hmm. so for Lovecraft, it was very essential to his core way of thinking and feeling. And that's why it comes across so powerfully. Uh, and that's why it has influenced uh, a number of other writers. The funny thing is, I don't think someone like Campbell actually wasn't influenced by that aspect of Lovecraft. I don't think Campbell is all that cosmic, really speaking. But he has many other great virtues, but he just doesn't respond to, to cosmicism. Eh, that's fine. Uh, Ligotti sort of does. Ted Klein does. Um, uh, actually, I think he is Lovecraft may have influenced science fiction writers uh, more. There's been some interesting work done lately on how Lovecraft influenced Philip K. Dick, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, oh, wow. even Heinlein, and and maybe Frank Herbert, a, a really fine uh, prof- uh, uh, professor in uh, Australia. Uh, Ellen Greenham wrote an interesting book that we published recently from Hippocampus about Lovecraft's influence on Dick and and Heinlein and and uh, 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 Frank Herbert. Very interesting book. So that aspect of Lovecraft, I can see, you know, is more, you know, more uh, something that science fiction writers would pick up than than maybe horror writers. So that's a vein that could still be still be uh, further investigated. And it's something we've talked about on this podcast too: is just how influential and pervasive his style is. Is that sometimes you can read something or watch something that you just say like, wow, this feels so Lovecrafty. And then you read interviews with the creators and like, yeah, we didn't know who that guy was. We just, but, but people keep telling us like, oh, this is so Lovecrafty. And because of just how, how influential and, and how it seeped into, to culture, pop culture in general. And so that, that leads me to, you know, in our correspondence, you said that you weren't, you weren't a movie expert and, you know, people can argue based on our podcast that we are not experts either. We are just enthusiasts, but as a Lovecraft fan, I'm curious as to, some films that you have seen that you find to be exemplary and how they kind of convey the Lovecraftian themes and whether they're direct adaptations or not. Cause actually I think some of the best Lovecraftian films out there are ones that have nothing to do with his texts. I could mention two films in particular. One clearly is a love that Lovecraft adaptation. Let me talk about that first. Sure. And that's the German film, Die Farbe, uh, the color, uh, yep. I think it came out like 19, 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's a German production, but I think the, the director, whom I was in briefly in touch with, is Vietnamese, right? Yes. Juan Vu. Yeah. I thought that was magnificent. I mean, I mean, first of all, it's all black and white, except the end when you where you see the color the, finally. The color. Yep. Uh, and, of course, they take some liberties in the sense that, of course, this is set in post-war Germany, but that's okay. I thought it was... It was superb. I felt that there was something about the general atmosphere that that was to me profoundly Lovecraftian and profoundly faithful to the story, even if it's not necessarily faithful to the incidents in the story. Um, 
I would have liked to see an even more faithful adaptation at some point. Uh, I was kind of hoping that Mr. Richard Stanley's Color of Space would have been that, but <clears throat> it wasn't. Oh, sure. That's okay. I'm sorry. I was at hey, I was at the premiere. It was shown at the Lovecraft Film Festival mm-hmm. in Portland uh, a couple of years ago. Richard Stanley was there. I talked to him briefly. I liked it at the time, but as I thought about it further, I said, "Guy, you missed so many opportunities to shoot the actual story." I mean, this is what people don't get. I have gone on and on here and and elsewhere about what, what you know. Lafrette's a great prose writer. Okay, fine. A lot of his uh, you know effect is done through the magic of prose, but he was also a very visual writer. That's what a lot of people don't get. Very visual, and in in something like The Color Out of Space, that great climactic scene, uh, not, not quite the climax, but you know a little ways in, where that pathetic farmer Nahum Gardner. Is is trying to explain what has happened to him, you know, and he just he doesn't understand, you know, cold and wet, but it burns, you know, this whole like a monologue, you know, it's almost like Hamlet's soliloquy, uh, you know, it's like what is going on with me, and then he crumbles into dust. Oh my God, that that is a scene that is tailor made for film, to, especially today with all the special effects that we can do, but not one of the, the, the adaptations of Color of Space does that. Is that correct? Not one of them that I can remember. Um, I, I I don't, I, I think you're correct about that one. Because um, yeah, we've seen, uh, we've covered um, Huang Vu's uh, version on this podcast. We, we've we also watched the Rich Stanley one, The Curse, and, and then there's, there's an oh, the Italian... Old, the old- well, the yeah. old one from you know the Die Monster Die, of course, which is ridiculous, but uh... right. And, and there's there's an Italian version as well, I think, called The Color Out of the Dark, huh. uh, which is it, it's an Italian production, and yet there's no Italian actors in it. It's largely in English. It's it's, it's interesting, but but no, as that's a roundabout way of saying like no, no one has really done that scene to an effective degree. I don't mm-hmm. think. And it's like, oh man! I mean, you couldn't have drawn it up better than that. So that that frustrates me. But nevertheless, so I'm still waiting for you know a really good color of space. Defarba, I think, comes close, but you know, even that could be improved on. Okay, mm-hmm. the other film I want to talk about is Peter Weir's The Last Wave. I don't know if you've you've mentioned this, uh, no, whether you've discussed this. I've talked about this a lot here and there and everywhere. Again, I'm not a film guy, but. That film dates to like 1977, I believe. Um, set in Australia, um, it's all about ancient gods, you know, sort of prim- the, the you know Aboriginal gods, the sort of reemerge or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I've forgotten the details. But when I was sitting there, some and you get to the ending, I I leaped out of my chair. I said, "Oh my god!" Peter, either Peter Weir or somebody on that set had to have read The Shadow Out of Time because they take this element that is directly out of the shadow of time namely the the idea that a modern person receives conclusive evidence that he had gone back in time you know millions of years ago and written something back there it is that that's not exactly how it comes across in the film but it's that same idea of 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 the, 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 the you know this this incredible you know time distortion uh and yet I've looked at several books about Peter Weir. He's a famous director. People have been writing about him for a long time. Not one of them mentions this this possible Lovecraft influence. I think it is certain that he or somebody uh, connected with that film had to have read The Shadow of Time, which is also, by the way, said in Australia. Uh, <laughs> much of it. Um, uh, 
it's to me is unquestionable and it's a great film no matter what i mean a, a real a real sense of again maybe unintentional lovecraftian sense i don't know uh but i think that is that is if you want a, a lovecraftian film that is not explicitly lovecraftian that's the one to watch well, I'm, if nothing else, I'm glad that, about this conversation because it has given us another title for an episode in the future because I've never heard of that movie. So I'm, I'm glad, I'm a, but I'm a Peter Weir fan. Uh, so that, that is something that I should add, uh, not just as a film fan, but also as a Lovecraftian fan. So uh, listeners, you've heard it here first. Um, look for The Last Wave as an episode coming sometime in the future. We don't know mm-hmm. when quite yet. Um, and then once again, kind of to do the flip side of that, movies that you see that claim to be adaptations or um, I guess what what are the primary mistakes that a movie or a director makes when they try to adapt something Lovecraftian, because we, we have maintained for a long time, basically it's hard to do internalizations in a strictly visual media. So what people tend to do instead is they focus on viscera and violence and specifically tentacles all the time. They throw a Mm -hmm. tentacle in there. Like it makes it Lovecraftian. That's, that's a big complaint that we have about things like that. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think a lot of directors either don't have much of a budget or they don't really fundamentally don't have much of an imagination. That's that's the key here. Tr- yeah, translating words into film in whatever capacity you're talking about, whatever text you're you're talking about is always difficult. Um, and I think it is in particular difficult with Lovecraft. But in fact, as I say before, it is actually easier than you think it is. Because Lovecraft's imagination really is visual, so just stick to the story, <laughs> and and you you know half the battle is won. Um, uh, you look at something like like um, uh, the old Dunwich Horror from nineteen seventy. Yeah. I mean, what a goof! Uh, <laughs> first of all, uh, you know, I mean, uh, okay, I understand that film has to make certain modifications. It is a popular medium, whereas. Lovecraft was not writing necessarily for a popular audience. I mean, he ended up publishing in a in a popular venue like Weird Tales, but that his audience was, shall we say, basically the audience of one himself. But no matter, um, he was writing for a much higher level audience uh, that didn't want all this blood and guts and stuff. Um, and there's actually surprisingly little of that in Lovecraft's own stories. Um, but nevertheless, what do you do about the Dunachar? Well, instead of this hulking, uh, you know, eight foot tall. Wilbur Waitley, you have pretty boy Dean Stockwell, you know, as the as the protagonist, and 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 then then all of a sudden you have Sandra D coming in there as as I don't know what, uh, you know, and, and whatever. There's no figure like Sandra D in the story. I'm sorry, that's just you know, and I understand the need for a female lead. Okay, fine, whatever. Um, but there have been other films uh, like. Uh, 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 you know, John Carpenter's The Thing, which had no women in it. I mean, no offense to women, but, uh, you know, that's it. Lovecraft's uh, At the Mountains of Madness has no women characters. You could put them in there now. If you set the film in a, in the present day, you could have some of the explorers uh, be women. That's not a problem. Um, but, you know, you can also make a film that is just men or just women, whatever, whatever you want. Uh, you don't necessarily have to have this mix in there uh, just for the sake of having it. Uh, the, you know, the, 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 the logic of the story has to determine what the, what the characters are. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, as I say, just uh, something like, um, um, uh, John Carpenter's in the mouth of madness, 
somewhat successful, you know, um, you know, had some Lovecraftian elements. It, uh, the, the protagonist there is basically a kind of a combination of Lovecraft and Stephen King. Fine, mm. okay. Um, and, and parts of that were very effective. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I want to tell a director, you know, maybe you, one day you can do a Lovecraft film and never show the monster. <laughs> I don't think any filmmaker, even somebody like Del Toro or somebody like that, would have the discipline to do that, or that his production company would allow him to do that. He said, you got to show something. That's what film is. Okay. Um, but it would be an interesting experiment. Maybe it can be done in a short film, uh, you know, a 15, 20-minute film. That's why I actually like going to the, the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, because they have a whole series of short films that can be, you know, obviously done something on a shoestring sometimes, you know, literally one, one of the best things I saw uh, at this recent festival was a film called Night Gaunts. <laughs> it was basically just a reading of Lovecraft's poem from Fungi from Yugath called Night Gaunts. The <laughs> film lasted all of one minute, literally one minute. But it was, <laughs> to this day, I remember it's like, wow, that's a pretty good film. You know, you can do stuff like that when you do little short little films. One of the best things I've ever seen on Lovecraft, uh, way back in the in like 1981, I believe it was, uh, I was still a, a graduate student at Brown, and this guy came up to me named John Strysick, S T R Y S I K, I believe. John, he had just he he's a California guy. He had just done a short 17 minute film of the music of Eric Zahn. Okay. And he came, I don't know, he looked me up at Brown, I don't know, somehow he found me, and and we went to Brown's, uh, you know, film services, This was, and actually wound up a real, real to real, you know, or some sort of, you know, projector, and actually saw this film, and I was like, oh my god, I, I, I almost fainted, like, this is the color, this is the music Eric's on, I mean, it is an incredibly faithful adaptation, I mean, it's, a, it's an amateur production, if you like, um, but it's really, really well done, so... These kinds of things can be successful, but maybe only on on a short on a short uh, compass. Well, and I, I you, I'm so appreciative of the time you've given me today. I do have one final question before I send you off. It's mm. a little bit of a downer of a bummer of a question. Maybe we'll dep it depends on kind of how we get into it. But I, it is something that I wanted to get into. You mentioned like, yeah, we won't talk about all the racist stuff, and I don't want to talk about all the racist stuff. But certainly, as the preeminent scholar of H.P. Lovecraft, as someone who does not come from a a white American background. You've seen how the conversation around him and around culture has been changing, and especially in the wake of, you know, Black Lives Matter a couple of years ago, and just even how stuff has been shaped with fiction. I mean, Lovecraft Country came out. Um, you have authors like N.K. Jemisin who are kind of writing the Lovecraftian stuff from a, a non-white perspective. I'm, I'm curious as to, because I'm sure you've gotten questions about it, but just how how you have reconciled personally even just this idea of, yeah, this guy was a very talented author and also had some very troubling views because I feel like the conversation is either like it's one way or it's the other way. I know the world, uh, um, I think the, the World Fantasy Awards kind of changed the the award from a bust of Lovecraft to something that was a dragon or something like that. And everybody's heads kind of exploded. And there wasn't really a conversation so much as it's this side or it's this side. So if someone were to ask you about that, like just kind of how do you reconcile it? And like, I want to engage with this guy's stuff, but also a lot of it a lot of the text was not just troubling, but also his troubling views were at the core of it. Even something like the, you know, the horror at Red Hook kind of, it's, it's all there as the text. And I'm, I'd be very curious to kind of get your thoughts on that. Um, this is, this is a subject that is very difficult to speak in short compass because it's, it's hugely complicated and that's what people don't realize. Mm -hmm. 
and also, as, as you were suggesting, there's very little nuance in, in these discussions today, uh, largely because people don't understand the whole history of, of, uh, of this subject going back to, to you know, uh, in American history, Western history. Uh, let's just say these attitudes are very, very old and very, very persistent. Um, <laughs> the simple story is that Lovecraft was indoctrinated into these views at an early age it's quite obvious that his that growing up in a very conservative new england in the 1890s uh in a in a in a, in a pure wasp family that that uh, was unfortunately suffering economic and cultural decline his family and and maybe the region as a whole uh exacerbated these feelings in 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 uh, in lovecraft and his family um, we also have to take note of the fact that there was tremendous uh, uh, period of immigration from from Europe and Asia and elsewhere, basically between 1890 and 1920, and that's when uh, you know that really freaked out a lot of Americans, as it does today, unfortunately. Um, uh, and you know that's why these very severe immigration restriction laws were passed in the in the early 1920s. In fact. Um, I might not have gotten over, gotten into this country, were it not for the fact that uh, that my mother, uh, who came ahead of us as a professor, was able, uh, through various means, you know, legal means, obviously, uh, to to have her her children come over, because otherwise, these immigration restriction laws, which were still in effect at the time, uh, would not have allowed us to to join her uh, in this country. There you are. Um, and the point is that Lovecraft also believed that he had science on his side. Lovecraft acknowledged he 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 was a science guy. Um, science is the arbiter of truth. Unfortunately, the science he was consulting on this issue was getting antiquated. It was not fully antiquated yet, but he had studied a lot of nineteenth-century science and you know anthropology and biology, and he's said, "Oh yeah, well, it's obvious that, that 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 races are different and that some some are superior to others." Well. That conception, and it's it's a very complicated conception, didn't get overthrown until well after Lovecraft's death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, quite frankly, I, I take the view now that it is unreasonable to expect Lovecraft to, to have thought anything else, given his upbringing, given his education, given his status in, in, in society. And look, it's just the way he was. When I, when I was first reading Lovecraft and I first came upon it, I said, oh, well... Kind of silly, but you know, I paid no attention to it. Um, everybody has flaws. Everybody has misconceptions. Um, I, I'm, I, I, I hate to point this out, but in fifty or hundred years' time, they will look back upon us and say, "My God, how could those people have thought such things on whatever subject?" You know, it always happens in history. Uh, this this cultural change happens, and people look back and say, "Oh yeah, you people were horrible." Well, I hope we're not horrible. Uh, you know, maybe we're misguided on certain things that we're not even aware of now, uh, and and culture just changes. Um, there it is. Um, and let's just say Lovecraft is not alone in this in this attitude. And 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 in fact, the, the, this sort of thing, this sort of judgmentalism that's going on today, especially I'm sorry to say, among young people, doesn't get you anywhere. It's not going to change Lovecraft. It only sort of makes you feel superior. And that's never good. I mean, <laughs> you're not superior. You know, you're like everybody else. You know, this is just virtue signaling. I'm sorry to say it, but it is. Most of it is just virtue signaling. Um, 
and so, you know, nowadays people are now attacking uh, Mr. George Orwell, the sainted George Orwell, for being a homophobe and a misogynist or whatever else. Uh, please, come on, just give it up. Uh, I mean, don't excuse it. You know, I never excuse Lovecraft. I've kicked Lovecraft in the butt a lot of times throughout my biography for these attitudes. But, you know, you have to understand where he's coming from. And understanding doesn't mean excusing. Um, you just deal with it. And I actually think that very little of Lovecraft's fiction or other work is tainted by this this problem that he had. Uh, we have a few stories that 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 uh, you know are are uh, you know uh, had these sentiments, and yet one of the stories is the Shadow over Innsmouth, which mm. is clearly clearly a, a a a a parable against what what they called miscegenation, the mixing, the the interbreeding of of different races. That is clearly the basis of that story, and yet it is a great story. It is a great story. It has influenced a whole lot of other writers. It has been adapted many times on screen. Um, there it is. What can you do? Um, you know, it has, to me, an obvious racist uh, substructure, but it nevertheless is a great story. So you just have to, you just have to deal with it, and just try not to be so judgmental. Uh, it's just it's it's counterproductive, and it just makes you look stupid. Well, and one of the great things, uh, as we said on this podcast, about his stuff being in the public domain is that any creator, artist can find it and like, you know what? This is a great story. There's some parts about it that I don't like, but I can use my experience to turn this story into something which is relevant to an, a, another experience, but also still maintains that Lovecraftian nature, that idea. Because this idea of an existential and cosmic dread is something which has universal appeal, no matter what kind of person you are. But that idea of... of you, your existence is not special is something which is terrifying on a on a, a structural level, on a religious level, a spiritual level, but also from someone's experience who might kind of see how they've been subjugated or whatever and just like, you know what, I know what it's like to believe that or, or to have that belief of like my existence doesn't matter. So there's something in this guy's work that is still resonant and will continue to be resonant throughout generations, I think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, someone like Caitlin Kiernan, for example, um, who, who's a great transgender writer. I mean, and great writer, let's just be blunt about it. She's she's probably the best weird writer uh, of our generation, uh, setting aside Ramsey Campbell is a class by himself. But uh, um, she has written several stories uh, uh, taking off on, on the shadow of Innsmouth, but looking at it from the Deep One's point of view. And I think that's that, that's brilliant. That's it's that's, that's really clever how, 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 how she does that. So she's taken that, that sense of uh, outsideness and, and sort of turned it on its head. Lovecraft himself was an outsider in his own society, uh, and and so and yet and yet the, the these deep ones and and other creatures are themselves the ultimate outsiders. And so Caitlin said, "Well, let me look at it from their point of view and see well, what do they feel about this." So that's that's really very clever. I'm not so keen on uh, on another book that that, that Victor Laval wrote, um, the Ballad of Black Tom, which is kind of a a, oh, yeah. a turning around. He tried to do the same thing with for 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 horror Red Hook, but I, I don't think it was quite successful because I, I wanted more of it. I thought it was kind of insubstantial. I, I wish he had written written a full length novel. It's just a sort of a novella. Uh, okay. He could have he could have done much more with it. I thought than than he did. Um, but there there are lots of good things out there from that perspective, and, and I welcome them. They're they're fine. That's uh, that just you know shows you how pervasive Lovecraft's work is and how it can be taken in so many different directions. Um, and, and, you know, that's all to the good. 
Well, uh, SD Joshi, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great conversation. I'm very thankful for it. Um, in the show notes of this, I'm going to put a link to your website so people, you can explore his bibliography if you want to explore anything he's written in the past. But before we sign off, I want to give you just a chance of, and you've already touched upon this, but anything that you are working on or that you want people to kind of be mindful of to look out for in the future, what's, what's ahead for you? Well, I'll tell you, if you don't want to wade through... <laughs> several hundred thousand words of my history of atheism. Uh, <laughs> you could actually wade through millions of words of H.P. Lovecraft's letters. I am literally next year, I will have completed, I and my colleague David E. Schultz, will have completed the editing of the complete Lovecraft letters uh, with, the, with the volume of letters to to and from Frank Belknap Long. We It was a whole production even to get those letters, but now we're, we're on the verge of, of publishing them, so the whole set will be out there like, 23, 24 volumes. Uh, you really got to read those letters. They're magnificent. Um, otherwise, um, I'm just I'm doing a lot of editing of classic horror texts. There's still a lot of good stuff out there that people haven't read. Uh, I'm doing some for Hippocampus, some for Centipede Press. Um, one of the things I'm going to do after I finally finish this uh, history of horror fiction of, of atheism, I really want to study the 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 influence of Poe on Lovecraft. I still don't think that has been chronicled adequately, and I think I'm I'm getting ready to, to write something on that subject. Um, but I'm always busy with lots of different things, and uh, it's uh, you know I, I try to keep people up to date on my blog, but I I don't write that blog terribly often. But I'm too busy actually doing the stuff to write about it. So, <laughs> uh, but but I have my fingers in a lot of different pies. <laughs>